My guests today on the ATL Alts podcast are Rajiv Aranade and Owen Wilcock of Climate Core Capital. Climate Core Capital is a climate-oriented alternative investment management firm headquartered in New York that's focusing on addressing the following question. What does climate change mean for real estate? Traditional real estate valuation methods don't capture climate risk and markets are vulnerable to threats poorly understood by retail and institutional investors, according to Rajiv and Owen. I'm looking forward to interviewing Rajiv and Owen to gain a better perspective on why they believe real estate investors are exposed and underprepared for the disruption of climate change. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rajiv Ranaday and Owen Wilcock of Climate Core Capital. Rajiv, I always like to start with the backstory. So if you would tell us where you're from and how you got started. Yeah, sure. And 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 thank you for having us here. Um, so I'll, I'll try and do the long story quickly, which is I, I grew up in Connecticut, um, went to school in Chicago, and after a short stint at the Chicago Climate Exchange, which kind of planted a seed for me in terms of uh, thinking about climate change and how it intersects with capitalism generally, um, got into the institutional real estate world um, where I've had a, a 15 career doing advisory work, investment management, uh, capital placement, among among other things. Um, that journey also took me a bit around the world. So uh, I'm based in New York now, but I was, you know, started in Chicago, went to Singapore for five years, London for four years, where, where Owen and I connected and um, and now having uh, launched Climate Core here from, from the U.S. So, uh, you know, my, my journey is one of a lot of depth in the institutional real estate space, but also looking at it from, uh, you know, a few locations on earth, which has been very fun. Um, but, uh, but yeah, kind of coming back and focusing on a bigger issue. Fantastic. Owen. Yeah. Happy to, um, and great to be on as well. Uh, so as you probably tell from the accent, I'm from, uh, Australia. I usually don't talk about the weather of where I come from, but given today's topic, it's probably a little bit relevant actually. So, um, I'm from Perth, Western Australia, which is actually one of the only five Mediterranean climate zones in the world. Uh, everyone obviously knows of the Mediterranean, the original, you know, Athens, Rome, Jerusalem, Istanbul. But then the funny thing about Mediterranean climates is that they sit almost equidistant between the equator and the poles. So places like Los Angeles in Southern California, Santiago in Chile, Cape Town, the southwest of South Africa, uh, the other main Mediterranean zones, and they actually, Europeans, uh, uh, first Australians, Indigenous Australians had been there for over 40,000 years, but Europeans discovered this Mediterranean climate zone last. It's a very isolated part of the world. Um, but the funny thing about it is there's enough rain not to be a desert. There's enough warmth to grow abundant crops. There's enough fish and wildlife variety for you to have exciting cuisine and the rolling clouds from the ocean enables wine, which was the bedrock agricultural process for many of the first civilizations. So growing up in a Mediterranean climate, <clears throat> excuse me, um, it really is a Goldilocks experience when you grow up. And there's enough for you to observe about everything being just a little bit right, that it's the kind of place you can start to observe when things begin to change. Um, so, and we can talk about that when we get further in. But I effectively was a diplomat in the Australian government through my 20s. Uh, worked on international climate agreements, um, environment and conservation treaties. So really trying to uh, work on things that people instinctively value, but really get to see. 
And then after business school in London, I pivoted into real estate and some family office and institutional services. Uh, but really the, the climate anvil kept sort of hitting me on the head and I had the opportunity to come back to the Graduate School of Design at Harvard to do some research on the repricing of real estate in the context of climate risk. And the question that really preoccupied me there was, what is going to happen to the price of assets that we walk past every day when we can quantify climate risk better and there is some kind of price reflection to understand that risk? And uh, really, if you had looked at that question 10 years ago, there's some fantastic academics that we might touch on who were real pioneers, and I've been lucky to work with some of them, who saw this a long time ago, 10, 15 years, when really financial markets were just not ready to absorb such complex overlapping risks inside the way they think about investment methodology. And that slowly changed over time, driven a lot by central banks and regulatory authorities. And now as we're starting to see a lot of specific investors. So while I was at Harvard, I um, worked on a data set. And that data set effectively takes the 279 cities in the United States above 100,000 people and plots them on a curve for their overall climate risk between now and say 2040 to 2060 because climate scientists like to work in uh, interannual averages. So if we think about 2050 in the middle of that 2040 to 2060 zone, it feels a long way away, but actually if you're writing a mortgage today, a 30 year fixed mortgage, as many, as many of us have or refinanced, it's within that horizon. And you have two markets at the end just to help with the poles of the extremes. One is Ann Arbor, uh, which is if you were investing a dollar with climate risk as your front end driver, it would be the lowest risk market you could find in the US. And then you have Naples, Florida as the riskiest. And I think if people hear Ann Arbor and Naples, if you are an American real estate investor, there's something fairly intuitive about that. But the real story comes in the 277 markets that sit between them. They have a lot of different characteristics, a lot of countervailing forces, different types of climate risks. And as Raj and I started to talk about this with our respective backgrounds, we realized that there was an opportunity here to help explain how some of this might unfold. Your website, climatecorecapital.com, it really hits you with an immediate question, which is, what does climate change mean for real estate? Our real estate and capital markets universe has really been organized from only 70 years of modeling and data. It's a post-World War II lens. So we have an, a governing investment pattern in the financial markets that real estate is um, stable. It's a compounding machine. If you are in it for a long period of time, you are likely to see outsized returns if you invest well and close to centers of economic need. And uh, there's a lot of evidence to back that up. Since 1940, the average American home has risen ninefold in value after inflation. Um, and one of my other favorite stats in the commercial space is since, uh, the Empire State Building first had its market valuation in 1931. Relative to the initial cost of construction, it's achieved a 5.3% average annual growth rate over the very long run. 5.3% annually through all the different cycles. So there's a lot of intuitive reasons why people have had the priors they do about real estate. But global record keeping on temperature goes back to 1880. And actually climate models from tree rings and ice cores and other methods give us insights going back tens of thousands of years. So it's very common for the business world to interchange data between these time horizons. But honestly, everything we know about modern capital markets and how they behave is really limited to one quite stable lifetime. So the way we like to think about this 
And the way we like to explain it um, to investors is, uh, I, I had the I, I use the language of a person far wiser than I. So uh, John Holdren, who was President Obama's National Science Advisor, I had the good fortune to study under him at the Kennedy School. Uh, I think he's one of America's great science communicators, and he often didn't like the phrases global warming or climate change. He thought they were both misnomers, that they implied a uniform experience across the planet, that they gave this sense of gradual shifts, and they almost focused our minds on temperature too much, when actually the natural events that are going to shape the 21st century are really none of these things. They're non-uniform. They're beyond temperature. They'll be very rapid compared to our capacity for adjustment. And Holdren's view was actually a better phrase would have been something like global climate disruption because you are disrupting everything that we assume to be stable. Now, sometimes that will manifest in the form of a disaster. Sometimes it will be in the form of a slow onset change that actually makes a location unrecognizable from how it appeared when our ancestors in Atlanta or San Francisco or Miami or many other markets might have actually first found when they arrived. So I think it matters for real estate because it's effectively the most fixed interest game there is. You make these huge, long structural and purpose life investment horizons when you go to develop or adaptively reuse a building. And the truth is we know a little bit about what kind of instability is coming, but we know um, really not a great deal at the granular level about what that story is going to be. And we have catastrophe modelers and climate modelers that have been looking at this closely for 10 and 20 years in different guises. Um, but the thing that I think we're trying to get on the radar with the real estate community is it's very hard to adapt at the speed that firms or management teams might be able to. What do you think institutional investors need to take away from this conversation? Yeah, I think, you know, more and more investors are becoming savvy or aware of the issue climate risk poses to their portfolio or their investment decision making. It has predominantly come through an ESG lens where, um, you know, like you mentioned, you have a model, you have some assumptions you're making, and you are bringing some of that ESG or climate framework to kind of the uh, very high level consideration of this asset. So you may be looking at a site specific climate risk assessment. You may be looking broadly at how it fits within your portfolio um, uh, with climate risk kind of on or off. Um, what we often want to uh, kind of push is this notion that th there's no line item for climate risk. It is not the type of thing that as you're building a model, you can say, okay, here's my vacancy risk. Here are some assumptions I can make in terms of cap rate projections moving forward. Here are some assumptions I can make about interest rates. And you can kind of create these very nice sort of banded trajectories of, of what that might result in, in terms of returns. And, and climate change and climate risk poses uh, impact on every single other line item. So you're not gonna put in necessarily in your model that um, you know, the climate risk of this asset is five out of 10. And what does that mean? Climate risk shows up in insurance premiums and outsized growth of insurance premiums. It shows up in tax uncertainty it shows up in OPEX, of course, and CAPEX, most definitely in, in high-risk markets. Um, it shows up in the, in the back end of how you think about cap rate compression in terms of capital interest in your opportunity based on its overall 
kind of climate assessment. So that's one thing we often focus on is the notion that you can kind of control for the risk by kind of adjusting your model or building it in sort of discounts the reality that it pervades your model. You just don't realize it. And I think one of the things that I'd add on to what Owen said is going back to that question, what does climate change mean for real estate and real estate investors is this notion of volatility, which has been anathema to our asset class. People have gone into private markets, gone into real estate due to illiquidity premium, due to lack of volatility, due to inflation adjusted income. And and I think what we want listeners to come away with a little bit is that that volatility is going to start appearing and it's going to start appearing in the riskiest markets first. Um, to Owen's point, it happens everywhere, but in some places that volatility is just going to be less. So I, I think for investors, as they're thinking about climate risk within their investment decision making, it's being, um, you know, somewhat honest about not knowing what you don't know and, and realizing that it's pervasive. Real estate is, as you outlined, Owen, like this asset class that people associate with safety and security and, and it's slow to change. Where do investors start? Yeah. So investors regularly ask, what should we do? There are going to be a lot of new ideas. Um, there will be technologies that emerge that were not available a decade ago. I think the, the uncomfortable reality for a lot of people in real estate to absorb is that many of the easiest gains are painfully simple and others are really hard to confront. So just to give one confronting example, um, natural gas. So natural gas is effectively rebranded methane. Um, if you install it in a building and it leaks, uh, it's 80x more powerful than regular CO2. Now, if you build or allocate capital to a 100 key multifamily building with natural gas meters for each unit, and there's say a 50 year functional life and a 100 year structural life, we have to confront the fact that you are putting a carbon obligation into the back-end infrastructure of the built environment that other investors are going to need to undo. We had this idea that natural gas was going to be a bridge fuel. Uh, renewables weren't ready. Uh, coal um, and other forms of you know, oil extraction were dirtier. And so the idea was if we can create natural gas as a bridge fuel, and let's be honest, it, it's still a very critical component of America's energy needs and it powers, it's the majority power provider for many, many states in the country. Um, but at the same time, the more we lay out the lattice of energy infrastructure that was required for something like natural gas, the more we're eventually gonna have to unpick it. So even if the burden of future generations is not a concern to you, you run the risk that the incoming purchaser is concerned by that and revises their bid downwards to compensate for the extra risk that a future asset owner might have if they need to deal with that. So, so that's a sharp confronting analogy. But, but I think to be fair to the real estate community, it's still very difficult for them to have any agency over the type of energy that's coming into their building. It's very difficult for them without significant investment and the upside that warrants it to make meaningful changes in many of the structural components of that building. And in many cases, they're still dealing with life cycle assessment challenges. So the embodied carbon that was maybe put into the building whenever it was first designed or constructed because you know the vast majority of the built environment is already built. Um, to the second part of your question about what's the methodology. So ESG, 
as we currently understand it, is primarily looking at mitigation. So for, for listeners to understand the difference between mitigation and adaptation, mitigation is the effort that we are all involved in to make the time-sensitive decisions to decarbonise our economy as quickly as possible. Um, it's a very important thing and something that Climate Corps wholeheartedly supports. But that really manifests in your traditional ESG indicators. So um, reducing energy use or emissions, uh, dirty emissions. It's uh, building materials, procurement, supply chains. It's uh, health, wellness, different aspects of the air quality of the building and ways that you can potentially reduce the HVAC burdens of older systems. Um, the adaptation side is really where we sit. And adaptation is understanding that there is a range of overlapping risks that it is um, possible for us to predict in general terms, but difficult for us to predict in specificity. And there are locations, for example, a net zero building in a place like Miami or Los Angeles, that irrespective of the important work that is done to reduce the carbon footprint of the asset and make the tenant experience better, those markets are still going to deal with greater risks than, say, some others in the northern latitudes where the meaningful climate disruption is still going to come, but it's many decades after these early exposure markets. Um, so there are many, many different, you know, we talk to large institutional investors, we talk to family offices. Everyone is trying to navigate the process of benchmarking disclosures, standards differently, uh, and we try to respect that. Um, the one thing I would say, though, to be completely transparent with the audience is that ESG is a long way from being settled because we have scope, we have divergence. The real story for me around the ESG is divergence. We have divergence in scope, we have divergence in weighting, and we have divergence in measurement method. And because you have divergence across those three aspects, it's very difficult for us to look at a time in the future where there will be a synchronized benchmarking process. And so for that reason, I think most uh, investors with extant portfolios, sitting on portfolios with existing issues, um, they really have to think about what it is specifically that their portfolio is most exposed to and then start to work backwards. As investors are considering their entry into um, building climate risk or some of these concepts into their portfolio, I think to the point Owen touched on was aligning your portfolio to thrive with climate risk. And, and that's something we, we talk about a lot, which is institutions, particularly the larger institutions, owe it to their beneficiaries in a long-term view to make sure that their capital can thrive alongside recurring climate risk. Does that involve carbon mitigation as it goes from kind of the top, uh, you know, wellspring of the capital all the way down to a downstream operator or recipient of capital? Yes, the carbon mitigation is, is very important. It's also important that the capital itself sort of aligns with the climate reality, which um, which is a bit more of a, a meta-impact concept, but equally important. What was the thinking behind forming the firm Climate Core Capital? Uh, what are the services, you know, and, and what, what do you want to build? Yeah, good good question. When, when Owen and I were first starting this out and, you know, this idea and what Climate Core Capital has become germinated from, you know, literally I was in London, uh, Owen is was in Cambridge, and um, you know, just bringing to the forefront this question, what does it mean and applying some kind of thoughtfulness to it. Um, we started advising a family office who was pursuing a green building fund uh, or a green building strategy. And we were sort of coming off the calls with them saying there's something missing here, that this is a worthy exercise, but we're not sure it's getting to the point. And that dovetailed with a lot of Owen's research. 
And when we kind of fast forward and we come to a point where we are applying a data method, um, deeply analytical, but also conscious of the investor's capital allocation experience, there's a variety of things that we are, are looking at. Of course, one is the private markets and realizing that there is a place to identify overlooked markets, sub-markets, and assets where you are able to essentially de-risk uh, without a premium is something we like to say. So uh, you're able to access growth and a positive demographic story without simultaneously taking on climate risk. Uh, and, and that, I think, is the uh, essence of a private market strategy and kind of the fund that we envision there. Uh, the second is public markets. So looking at the universe of fixed uh, listed entities, so that could include REITs, that could include listed infrastructure, um, ag, timber, th things where you have a physical uh, component, physical location component, and our, again, our data method can uh, start to identify places where you're not getting compensated for your risk in those markets. And then the final thing which you alluded to is there are so many owner operators, large investors, and that question of where do they start we have been doing quite a bit of, you know, advisory work, uh, just focused on that question. Where do you start? Do you look at your portfolio and determine where the risks are? Do you commit to a market, let's say, you know, a higher risk market like Houston? Um, you know, you're committed to that market as an owner, operator, or developer, but you need to understand what's going to happen at, you know, a macro and sub-market level. And so, so we're very keen on sharing that knowledge. Um, there is not a view that we are sort of the, the holders of a secret that, um, uh, you know, is going to drive our fund returns. We're very much of the view that this is an, an extremely important um, transition for our entire industry, uh, you know, across investment management. But it's important to bend towards that. You know, you're, you're not going to kind of make big impact by just saying, here's our fund and your only way to learn from us is by committing capital to us. That's true, but um, but we want the industry to bend, and and we think we have a story they should bend to. Oh, and a lot of the research that you did and are still doing, it's out there, further ahead than than the business community is, and in, in, in interpreting it, understanding it, uh, and then commercializing it within the conversations that you've had. Are they aware? generally, uh, that there's this body of research, there's data, you know, do, do they need this conduit to that science and to that research and to that data? And it yeah, well, it's probably beneficial for the audience just to run through the four or five cornerstones of how uh, effectively what the research community understands about the behavioral data as much as the academic literature behind climate risk and real estate. So, and, and I think this is important uh, this is helpful for the audience maybe to just think as I say some of this to put yourself in the shoes of your boardroom or management team and just think is it possible for these kind of issues to be a, a, a challenge so we don't deal well with danger that is difficult to visualize countless behavioral studies show that we very often succumb to excessive optimism we are easily paralyzed by complex problems and withdraw and we tend to underestimate large risks and overestimate the effectiveness of protection measures. 
So what does all that mean? Well, polls that you see in the newspapers every day show that people know climate change is real. They know it will affect livelihood and property, but they don't draw the corollary that it's going to affect them. So how does that manifest? Well, we the academic research shows that very few homeowners look at risk classifications, insurance premiums or flood zone maps prior to purchase. That's a very consistent trait. Um, Non-floodplain properties often see insurance costs rise after a nearby flood. So even though you weren't in the flood zone, if you were near one, your premiums have tended to rise as well, which really shows that damage to infrastructure and loss of myriad services can be a factor for properties in proximity. Um, we also know from an excellent paper done by one of my former mentors, Jesse Keenan, who's now at Tulane with Jake Brandt uh, at the Kennedy School, they effectively showed that banks with localized knowledge in the Atlantic and Gulf Coasts are passing the, their most risky climate mortgages uh, onto the GSEs. They're securitizing them because they know that there is a greater risk coming down the pipe and looking to collateralize that as widely as they can. Um, and we also know that there is something akin to a sea level rise discount. So markets uh, that are exposed to sea level rise, and that is understood, uh, so places like Florida, there is generally a discount or a delta of about 7% to non-sea level rise exposed areas. Um, and then you get into the, the politics of this, which I think is important because, you know, real estate is such a local game. So voters consistently haven't rewarded officials for proactive decisions to mitigate risk, but they do reward officials who negotiate ad hoc federal emergency relief in the immediate wake of a natural disaster. So this suggests that there are actually very weak incentives for officials to be honest with their local ratepayers on the scale of prudent investment that might be needed to protect some of these early exposure markets like coastal Florida, like the Gulf Coast, um, like parts of California with you know high, high wildfire uh, risk. So there is this vicious cycle there where it's very difficult to have the reality discussion with the community. And as a result, um, you know, we know from Nicholas Stern's work and a lot of others that the cost of inaction is always greater than the cost of action. Um, and so we just keep kicking this can down the road. And where does that lead? Um, it, in many markets, the status quo is going to continue. We're not harbingers of doom that say that, you know, Miami is going to be underwater in 2040 and there won't still be a, a thriving, you know, multi, multi-billion dollar uh, property market there. That's not the case at all. I think there will be well-located central assets that continue to benefit from agglomeration patterns that have been going on for centuries. And, you know, if population and density continue to go into places, then prices will rise. That's still intuitive and we don't believe that's going to change. But even the most evergreen real estate markets are going to see repairs, regulatory compliance, insurance, property taxes become very instable inputs in an investment pro forma. And so what we are, when we've done our simulations, where we bridge the academic research into some of our own in-house proprietary modeling, we are seeing that um, assets in high risk locations are probably going to develop a new risk premium. And in some cases, it's going to be very difficult for a seller to find a buyer. Governments are going to, for the reasons I mentioned in the data, they're going to grapple with the cost of adaptation and either become underfunded in what they need to do or stuck because people don't want to pay or both. And I think together these forces are going to create highly nuanced tiers of assets with investors really left to decide what their risk appetite is. And so what Climate Core is trying to do is effectively say, we want you to think about climate beta. We want you to think about climate volatility. 
Sometimes it might be natural disasters, but really, I, and we can maybe talk about this later, the slow onset hazard story is really, I think, what scares us for a lot of places because it's not something that's readily observable in a before and after setting. We're wanting to say to the, the investment community, whether it's in the private or the public markets, you need to almost think in terms of climate risk on and climate risk off. And what is the trade-off of having a modest allocation in your overall portfolio in climate risk off real estate? particularly if, as our work has shown, there is still really handsome double-digit returns on offer in many of those markets because the secular growth story is still unfolding. Can you expand upon that comparison between Ann Arbor, Michigan and Naples, Florida, and also provide some context around the timeline? Yeah, I'll add one thing, and then I'll, uh, I think Owen will speak to sort of market comparison. Um, yeah, I think you've, you've brought up an important issue there, which is timing and the, the classic when is the when um, question. And if you're investing in Ann Arbor and Naples over a seven year period, you may say that, OK, over seven years, I don't think Naples is going to you know be swallowed by the sea and therefore it's OK, which could be true. The point that we're often trying to make and which is why we are on the long side of the trade is that over time, it may become less true, meaning that if you're holding on to an Ann Arbor asset and a Naples asset over a seven-year hold, the science and a lot of the analysis sort of close to guarantees that Ann Arbor will not experience a climate risk uh, element pervading the model, pervading the exit situation, pervading the financing or liquidity options. Over a seven-year period, it's very likely that Naples does experience that, whether it's that someone says, okay, you know, last year insurance premium shot up 10%. I need to model that going forward, and the asset is fundamentally worth less. Um, so th the when is the when is a very tricky question, and it's, it's that, that speaks to why we want to play the long for investors and that notion of climate risk on and off. Um, and, and also in comparing markets, right? So looking at Ann Arbor and Naples at the extremes, you know, that that's that's one thing. And what we spend a lot of time on is looking actually at markets that are a lot closer in their both economic demographic growth reality, but are different in terms of their climate reality. And um, Owen's just done an analysis on uh, Austin versus Atlanta. And, and, you know, that's probably a good, good segue, but, you know, those are two markets yeah. that on, uh, and obviously rele relevant for the audience uh, and, and the title of the podcast here, but two markets that superficially show a lot of the same trends are benefiting from a lot of the same trends, you know, under the climate uh, hood, a little bit different. Yeah. So just, just to put some numbers on this, um, from 2009 to 2021, so really effectively the post-crisis, um, almost real estate super cycle we're going through. Warm sunbelt markets in the southern United States really have seen sustained inbound migration, housing demand, economic growth. So the mean, uh, the median, sorry, house price growth in the United States over that time was 39%. Atlanta's was 287% and Austin's was 297%. So there's effectively been a, a 3x tripling in every house price in those markets over that period. If you take the 2021 Q2 cap rates for Class A multifamily in Atlanta and Austin, uh, they're effectively identical. Now, most of your audience would know 
Class A multifamily is a real bellwether category in real estate. It measures a market's expectation for future rent growth quite well. Um, so both markets were three and a half to 3.75% as a cap rate. And the overall US cap rate in the same category was about 5.2%. So these are two markets that enjoyed stellar growth for over a decade and the capital markets expect that to continue. And there would be a lot of investors out there that would allocate into Atlanta or Austin in a large portfolio decision deployment as though there was no difference. Something we like to think about a lot is days above 95 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 degrees Celsius for the overseas audience. So the real estate market doesn't price in climate risk at this time. And if you look at from 2020 to 2039, so the next two decades, Atlanta is going to experience 26 days above 95 degrees heat on average each year. Austin is going to experience 74. So it's effectively 3x the number of days where heat stress becomes an issue for the population. If you look at NOAA's drought vulnerability index, Atlanta measures low and Austin measures high. So you say to yourself, okay, but maybe Atlanta still is a larger market. So in pure residential VAR terms, there is more at risk, even if the, the, the changes are more extreme in Austin. So Atlanta's market is about $513 billion as of this year, and Austin's is about $312 billion. We have found in the research uh, and in our investing strategy that a more meaningful data point is the value at risk relative to your physical climate risk. So when you take your climate risk models, and we should credit our um, excellent data partner risk, RASQ, out of the Northeastern Data Science Labs, who do some excellent work, and, and we think their climate modeling is really top rate. Um, when you look at the risk models that cover hurricanes, sea level rise, storms, drought, wildfire, extreme heat, and you combine them with the readiness of each major US city to adapt to disaster and slow onset hazards, we actually find Atlanta is the most climate resilient Sunbelt market. While Austin's place in that curve on that percentile of 279 cities is well into the bottom half. So that's just one example that Raj and I sometimes give to investors to show that even if you're looking at identical cap rates now, a cap rate is going to move like an accordion in either direction. And there is a lot of really irrefutable scientific consensus around some of these southern markets that have seen huge growth. And people are expecting that to continue to suggest that these places are not going to feel like what we have understood them to when you look at limited partner investors, institutions, even retail investors that are, are trying to find ways to express a view around climate risk and ESG, can you draw some comparison and contrast uh, relative to Europe or Latin America or other, you know, Asia versus those in the U.S.? There is certainly, from a European perspective, there, there's certainly an advancement in terms of the, the level of discourse around climate risk and climate change. Culturally, politically, economically, a little bit more aligned around tackling some of these larger collective action issues. Um, and so as a result, climate change and energy efficiency or carbon mitigation can, can come to the forefront a little bit. So we found in our conversations with investors, whether they be wealth management firms or large institutions in Europe, that there is a sense of um, domain expertise on climate risk 
there is a sense of uh, needing to build this into their portfolios from from the get go. And you know, I, I, again, I think that that speaks to um, cultural norms as much as economic ones. And they are also typically in smaller countries. These are large institutions and large wealth management firms that cannot avoid investing in the United States or in East Asia, where you see growth uh, in a way that you don't see in Europe. And so I think many of those investors are on the forefront of bringing what they have seen and what they experience for their own beneficiaries in, in Europe and the standards that they need to deploy against uh, to the United States. I think that that's a bit of a, a, a reality. Um, you know, and, and then, of course, you know, not, not all of these markets, when we talk about Europe and Asia as as big geographic areas, the um, the environmental or climate risk experience, you know, among Australia, Singapore, Thailand and Japan, you know, are, are meaningfully different, um, which actually we find there's a little bit more uh, similarity between, let's say, APAC as a region and the United States, uh, just in terms of number one, growth and size of the market, but also the fragmentation of those markets. So um, there is a lot more, uh, some of this is due to the EU, some of this is due to other reasons, but Europe has a bit more of a conjoined effort or a conjoined um, uh, philosophy on on climate risk and climate change. That's not the case in East Asia. Um, That's not the case in the United States. So uh, you know, I think that's important and, and also fundamentally um, what's at risk, right? So Europe, due to its geography, you will see uh, extreme heat um, in the southern Mediterranean, places like Spain and Italy, and that will fundamentally change what are uh, predominantly agriculturally driven economies and societies. It pales in comparison to what the United States might experience, what East Asia might experience, and the sheer number of people at risk uh, particularly in East Asia and South Asia. Um, so, so actually the stakes are quite a bit higher, um, both here and, and in Asia. Um, so, uh, and, and of course, in the United States, as, as Owen mentioned, VAR, value at risk, uh, you think about the value, sheer real estate value, but also the economic value, GDP value of places like Miami, Houston, Austin, Los Angeles, San Diego, and, and these places that are meaningfully at risk but also what they contribute to our, our overall economy. Um, you know, I, I think that's why we, although we, you know, funnily, Owen and I met in London, um, and, uh, but, but this is an American idea, I think, fundamentally, in, in terms of where the issue, issue lies. And I would I'd briefly just return to the Mediterranean analogy because I think it, it is easy for us to understand the Goldilocks comp, uh, concept. So... If you have, if you can think of a place you've visited in your life that had, or just a really nice temperature on the back of your neck most days, just enough rain, just enough warmth, you know, a place like Southern California that relies on this really um, fragile uh, mountain valley system through a diff- many different parts of the state to bring water to the coast, um, the the agricultural bedrock that really America and many parts of the world rely on California for. Um, if you think about all the different fragile levers on a Mediterranean climate and you just start to tweak each a little bit, the compound effect is enormous. And we see that, you know, even I, we're recording this at a time where California has gone through a very long and traumatic drought. 
And they're now seeing, uh, for the first time in a while, some pretty meaningful precipitation. Um, places like Sacramento have recorded their wettest days on record. There is no stormwater drain system in any American city that is able to withstand the kind of intense pre precipitation events that's laid out in the science. What gives you optimism in the, in the kind of the day-to-day -day work when you're talking to clients, when you're talking to uh, investors about the, the magnitude and the importance of the subject when you look at all the challenges that we face. Yeah, I, I, I hope this doesn't sound too grim an answer to an optimistic question because we are very optimistic. We're long only participants. Um, I think the sheer scale of some of the early wealth destruction on specific assets and sub markets is going to be so pronounced that the market will respond. So I have faith in the capacity of people to realize that really fundamentally what we're talking about is the disruption of cash flows. You are in real estate, you have a real estate allocation because you like the idea of stable cash flows. And there is a selection of markets and submarkets around a huge economy like America, where it is possible to thrive and continue to achieve those stable cash flows alongside recurring climate risk. Uh, and if people are interested in thinking about places that could be, and you know, we'd obviously welcome any listeners um, to get in touch if they're interested in allocating. Broadly though, I think as well, nature, first of all, has an extraordinary capacity to rebound. Uh, and we've seen that in a lot of different contexts. So there are places that we have done some real single use hazard degradation to that I do think once people retreat from, um, there will be the ability for uh, different parts of, uh, you know, real estate markets to recover quite quickly. But the other thing I think is people intuitively know something's up. And the best advice I could give to allocators uh, and investors is try in your boardrooms and management teams to debunk that behavioral data. Try not to be the group that says, oh, we know it's happening, but we don't draw the corollary that it's going to hit us. Uh, and I think if you do that, if you say, right, we have a, a conscious, explicit intention to not be laggards, we want to be early movers, we want to educate ourselves, it might be that actually the portfolio is positioned reasonably well, but at least let's have the conversation, throw open the curtains and find out. And Raj, uh, before we wrap up, I'll let you make the, uh, the final comments. Yeah, I think it's a great question. What gives us optimism? Um, we are we digest a lot of negative information in the course of our, our day jobs. Um, and, and yet we, we seek to use that as fuel to drive a more optimistic story um, in terms of what we're doing. And, and what, what gives me optimism, uh, so, so this is my second meaningful entrepreneurial journey. Uh, a couple of jobs ago, I was the founder of a, a sort of a real estate investment fintech platform. And what gives me optimism in this instance is, I think, two, two things. The, the nature of the community focusing on the issue of climate change and, and climate risk in terms of the entrepreneurial ecosystem. So when we meet people who are tangentially related to what we're doing or they're just a, you know, a climate tech entrepreneur or maybe a, you know, in the overlap between prop tech and clean tech, um, Maybe they're in a similar space like us. They're more on the advisor, consulting, or investment management side. The amount of collaboration that happens so quickly, I think, is very unique to this this field. And you know, coming back to that optimism, it's because people who get into this tend to care. They tend to hope that what they're doing is 
you know, within that optimistic realm. Um, and, you know, they've committed themselves or their business or their their brain power and effort and resources to, to accomplishing that. And then the second thing I'd say is Owen and I find ourselves very often, um, you know, the stupidest people in the room. And that is something that gives me a lot of optimism. There are some very, very smart people who have committed themselves to this, you know, century challenge. Um, and and we are in a niche within a niche within a niche within that challenge. Um, but, uh, you know, it gives us a great privilege of being surrounded by people who are, you know, committing their lives to it as well. You know, one of the things that I want to do um, is tell our guests where they can find more information about you. So you have a website, climatecorecapital.com. Uh, you guys are very active and will be uh, becoming more active uh, on LinkedIn. And um, I would encourage our listeners to find uh, uh, Rajiv and Owen on LinkedIn, again, through their website, climatecorecapital.com. On the show notes for ATL Alts, I'm going to post, uh, with your permission, some of the research uh, that you mentioned, Owen, uh, from some of your colleagues and some links to some of the uh, the data sources and any other materials that our listeners would find, and, and those will be available in atlalts.com. Gentlemen, uh, I really appreciate you joining me today on ATL Alts. Uh, Rajiv Ranaday, Owen Wilcock, congratulations on all the hard work and, and uh, efforts at Climate Core Capital, and I wish you the best of success. 